Habakkuk chapter 1. Today we begin what I think will be a brief study, but we don't know, in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is considered one of the minor prophets. Um, There are 12 books at the end of the Old Testament that are called the minor prophets, and they came to be known this um, in contrast to the the longer uh, prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, which are known as the major prophets. It has nothing to do with their standing, that they're less important. It's just that their writings are much briefer. In the Hebrew scriptures, the 12 are in fact considered one book. They're called the 12. And because they were so short, (coughs) originally they were put on one scroll. We know very little about the man Habakkuk. From the context of the book, we know that he was from Judah, as were Obadiah, Joel, Micah, and Zephaniah, that he lived in the seventh century before the Babylonian invasion of Judah. The other prophets during his time were Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Nahum. Habakkuk stands apart from the other prophetic books in that instead of being God's message or conveying God's message to the people, the book of Habakkuk is in fact a dialogue between the prophet and God with the prophet Habakkuk complaining to God, first about the situation in which he lived, and then secondly about God's solution to that problem. So this brings up the question, what is a prophet? Generally it is seen that a prophet is a speaker or messenger for God. His words are not the product of his own spirit, but came from a higher source, came from God himself. So this raises the question, Since the book of Habakkuk is about a dialogue, is Habakkuk a prophet? Does he qualify as a prophet? And I would say, yes, absolutely. But it would be objected. He spoke to God rather than speaking for God. The prophets addressed the people. They were a channel, if you wish, a conduit through which God's message would come from God through the prophet to the people. Habakkuk, as far as we know, did not address the people directly, but he did write this book, and people could read it and learn from it. I find it interesting that oftentimes people have an almost romantic view of the prophets of the Old Testament, a sense of adventure. They wish they could be like the prophets, to hear God's voice and to know what was going to happen. Yeah, no, I would not want that, not me. Because the privileges of a prophet bring terrible burdens. Think of Jeremiah. He knew of the devastation that was going to come. He told the people and no one would believe him. Put yourself in his place. You know what's going to happen. You tell people and no one will listen. No wonder he was called the weeping prophet. We might call Habakkuk the complaining prophet. But if we did, we would need to recognize that the reason that Habakkuk could complain was because of what he knew. So we need to ask, what did he know that other people did not? How did he know what he knew when others did not? Well, God supernaturally gave him a clear view of his current circumstances, the present reality, and then a view of what was to come. 
and that knowledge broke Habakkuk's heart. So no, I would not want to be an Old Testament prophet. And yet, having said that, one could argue that in a sense, we are to be prophets, not in the predictive sense. We do know that the Lord Jesus is coming one day. We don't know when. But we are to be prophets in the moral sense. That is, we need to know what is right and wrong, to clearly see the failings of humanity and societies at large and their need of the Lord Jesus. However, we can, in fact, escape that responsibility if we don't know Scripture. You see, God has spoken. He has revealed the truth in Scripture. And if we don't know Scripture, then in a real sense, we cannot carry on the prophetic role that God has given us. If we do not know Scripture, we will fail to see matters clearly. And unlike Habakkuk, we will not feel the burden of speaking the truth and living the truth. You see, the truth is not simply a matter of intellectual knowledge. There is an intellectual or rational aspect to it. But the truth is knowledge that has been internalized, that has been energized by the Spirit of God. And we need to realize, as the Old Testament prophets did, that knowing the truth brings with it a heavy responsibility. By the way, we live in a culture in which knowledge is seen almost as a leisure sport in which you can know things for no good reason at all. Knowledge can become a matter of trivia. And when this happens, the Christian faith can seemingly just become another line of trivia. So back to the question, was Habakkuk a prophet? Yes. God opened his eyes to see reality as it was. Habakkuk in turn complained to God based on what he saw. God answered him, telling him the coming solution. Habakkuk complained about God's solution. God explained his solution. And then Habakkuk praised God for his greatness. The result is a dialogue that we call the book of Habakkuk. And if we read this carefully, we hear an urgent call for the wicked to repent. We have a message of consolation for the believers, in Habakkuk's time, a small group of believers. But then lastly, it serves as an admonition for God's people to continue steadfastly in their trust and confidence in the promised salvation. One more thing. Habakkuk's situation is radically different from ours today. I don't want to try to make a one-for-one comparison between what he was experiencing and what we are experiencing during this pandemic. But I think we can learn from this book. We can learn from someone who faced a dark and bleak time and came to see that faith is the proper response. So let's begin by looking at Habakkuk's first complaint and God's answer. The first four verses of Habakkuk 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? 
Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The book starts with the words, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. An oracle is a divinely sent message. But where the newer translations, the NIV, which we use, and the ESV, have the word oracle, the King James and older versions have the word burden. Literally a heavy load to be borne or to be lifted up. And I think what we should see is actually a combination of the two, of oracle and burden. That is, Habakkuk is lifting up in proclamation an utterance or prophecy denouncing the sins of the people. And then he pronounces on them a heavy judgment. But what exactly is the nature of this burden, this oracle? Verse 2, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? I'm tempted to say that anyone who has spent any time in prayer can identify with this cry. But I think in our current circumstances, I think many more can identify with this complaint. Have there been times when you have called out to God and it seems that he does not answer, that he's not listening? What did you feel? I think a whole spectrum of emotions are possible. Anger, frustration, hope, calmness, perhaps helplessness. And the question arises inevitably, why does God allow this to happen? A variety of answers come up, and that would be a whole another sermon, if not a series of sermons, or a series of sermons. Um, that God does not, in fact, allow things to happen. God is the author of all things. Or that God does allow things to happen so that we will cry out to him, as Habakkuk did. We cry out to him, eventually, not always at the first moment, because he alone knows all things and he alone can do what is necessary. I'm reminded at the, of the end of John chapter 6, where Jesus had fed the 5,000 and you have this going back and forth and slowly but surely the people are drifting away from Jesus because they don't like what he has to say. Verse 66, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. God allows things that we might cry out to him, or God causes things that we might cry out to him. I'm reminded of two women in the Old Testament, Rachel and Hannah, whom God caused to be barren. We're told the Lord closed her womb. They both first cry out to their husbands. Jacob says, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Alcana said, Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? These are hard and I would say quite insensitive responses to their wives' suffering. Not only that, they suffered at the hands of their rivals. Leah, Rachel's sister, but also Jacob's wife. Penina. Elkanah's other wife. But then we read that they turned to God and they held on. 
We read, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. And the child she had was Joseph. With regard to Hannah, we are told, and the Lord remembered her. Habakkuk's situation is quite different, obviously, from these two women. He is surrounded by an unjust and violent society. Verse 2, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. There appear to be three categories to Habakkuk's complaint, all having to do with the society in which he lived. First of all, there is violence. Other words used are destruction, strife, and conflict. Then there is injustice, and specifics are given. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. Justice is perverted. The wicked hem in the righteous. But then ultimately, I think it is the third category that drives this. Why do you tolerate wrong? In other words, has God forgotten, in fact, that this is his land, the holy land, where his glory is to dwell, where mercy and truth are to come together? Has God lost his power to establish law and order in his land? Why has God not done anything to make it once again a holy land and Judah a holy people? Why did God not answer the prayers of his prophets? Why must the righteous suffer at the hands of the wicked? Simply put, why? So in verses 5 to 11, God answers him. And you will notice that he does not answer the wise. He does not explain his reasons for delaying his answer. You see, he owes no apology, no explanation of the whys and wherefores of his ways. He is the unchanging one. He is unwavering justice. He is unchanging grace. Keep this in mind as we read these verses. Verse 5, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians. By the way, some translations have Chaldeans. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. In verse number five, God tells Habakkuk, actually he implies this, it's not said directly, that he is going to do something publicly 
Look at the nations and watch. Amazingly, you would not believe it if you were told, speedily in your days, that is, Habakkuk is going to live to see this. And it is God who is going to do this. And what exactly is God going to do? I'm going, I am raising up the Babylonians. Consciously or not, we struggle with this statement, in part because being modern people, we have been taught or trained in modern historical thinking. And as a result, the Old Testament doesn't seem like real history to us. See, briefly, modern historical thinking, and I would say all branches and schools of thought are included here, assume that the explanation for history lies within itself. And in the Old Testament, we have an explanation. God is doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonians. And therefore, it can't be real history, just a collection of stories. Modern historical thinking also assumes that the historical process takes place entirely with the materials already within itself. So we hear of the rise and fall of empires, the decline of empires or nations, the birth and death of societies and civilizations. Modern historical thinking also assumes that the system is closed. That is, from a theistic point of view, some would argue that God knew what was going to happen rather than causing things to happen. The Christian view of history is that history has a beginning and it will have an end, and both the beginning and the end are in God's hands. Therefore, what comes in between the beginning and the end, all of that is invested with meaning and purpose. This means that God, in fact, did raise up the Babylonians within the flow of history. Habakkuk understood this, and he believed this. That's why we'll have his second complaint. We'll see in a few moments. But before getting to that, let's consider the Babylonians. They're characterized by two basic sins. Autonomy, that is self-rule. They think that they make the rules themselves. And then cruelty. And ironically, one could say that they are guilty of the same sins that we find in Judah. What Habakkuk was complaining about in the first place. They are filled with pride. They are an autonomous people. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. They promote their own honor. They deride kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. They sweep past like the wind. They are guilty men whose strength is in their God. And then they are cruel people that ruthless and impetuous people. They seize dwellings not their own. Their horses are swifter than leopards. They are fiercer than wolves at dusk. They fly like a vulture swooping swooping to devour. They are all bent on violence. It may be, and I, I suspect that in fact Habakkuk knew this. He knew about the reputation of the Babylonians. What he probably didn't know, and thus God is revealing it to him, is that God was raising up the Babylonian Empire. And it is implied and not stated at this point, he was doing so to judge his people. This leads to the second complaint in verses 12 through 17. 
O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Habakkuk wants to know, how can a holy God employ an impure and godless agent? In other words, okay, I know I live among people who are not living the way they should. That's the first complaint. There's, there's violence, there's injustice, and all this. But man, the Babylonians are far worse than us. How can you take a godless people who are worse than Judah and use them to punish Judah? Our situation is quite different from Habakkuk's, but I think we can learn from what he went through. I want to suggest that there are two basic rules. There may be more, but I suggest two basic rules for questioning God. And I think that all Christians at some point in their lives do, in fact, question God. To never question God is not, in fact, a sign of faith. In fact, if one does not question God, it may be an indication of a lack of thinking, maybe just pure laziness, Maybe it's looking at the Christian faith as being um, ritual. It's something we do rather than it being a vital truth which is necessary for life. If we do not question God, we may in fact be denying that he has personhood, someone with whom we can have communication. We deny the work of the Spirit to teach us and to guide us. When we complain, when we ask God, why are you doing this? The Spirit, in fact, can teach us and guide us. If we do not turn to God, if we do not question him, in fact, we are denying that he is concerned about us. We also deny that we are finite and God is infinite. And if there's someone who is infinite and we're finite, should we not, in fact, ask this person why are you doing this? Why is this happening? What is the answer? I think also if we do not question God, we deny the fact, the reality of the fall, that our thinking is messed up. It's marred. And we need to turn to someone who is outside ourselves. I would suggest to you, in fact, that questioning God may be a sign of growth. In the same way that children grow through stages of becoming more independent and questioning their parents, which can be frustrating for the parents, but it in fact is a sign that the child is growing, that they are maturing. There are obviously dangers to questioning God. 
one might be an insistence, you must tell me, you must explain to me the situation. I have a right to know. And if you don't tell me, then I'm leaving. There might be an insistence, an insistence, I can take it, I'm tough. Bring it on, tell me the answer, answer my questions. There may also be an insistence that I am able to understand. I'm smart enough, tell me the answer and I'll, I'll, I'll get it. I'll know what you mean. But I think it may boil down to this, this seeing the answer as the basis of belief. I need to know, otherwise I won't believe. The danger is seeing God as your equal. You pull him down to your level and say, here, I have questions for you. I think there's nothing wrong with questioning God per se, but there are dangers if we are not careful. So the rules, what are the rules to questioning God? First of all, rule number one, we must acknowledge that God's character is unchanging. We may question his actions, his dealings with the human race, but we cannot question his character. If we lose sight of who God is, then we may end up asking, is God really there? So we may question his actions, but not his character. I remember many years ago, decades ago, and I don't even remember the circumstances, but I was new here, a young pastor, and I was speaking to an older pastor, and um, I told him, you know, I'm really angry with God right now. And his response was, that's okay, God can take it. We can, in fact, be angry with God, we can question what he's doing. Why are you allowing this to happen? But we cannot question his character. The second rule is that God's character should be used as a reference point or reference points so that we might in fact know why God is doing what he's doing. We may or may not, but if we're going to question God, we need to keep his character in mind. We see this in a couple of stories, well, actually many stories, I'll only mention two. The first is with Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, the story of the three visitors coming uh, to visit Abraham, and they, um, they make the, the announcement that next year Sarah is going to have a son. But as they are leaving, one of them says, should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham's response is, Far be it from you to do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. And then he says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? In other words, he questions God's actions in judging Sodom and Gomorrah. But he sees that God, in fact, is the judge of all the earth. That is his nature, his character. And that is the framework within which Abraham is given an answer. And then we have the story of when David brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. And the Lord killed Uzzah when he reached up to, to study the Ark. Um, Dave spoke to us about this some time ago. We read, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, that is, outbreak against Uzzah. 
David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Yes, he was angry, but he also recognized God's majesty and his sovereignty. He had a sense of God's power and God's holiness. And we see this in Habakkuk's second complaint. In his complaint, there are seven reference points, at least, based on God's character. First of all, he refers to him as Lord. And this is the word that is used instead of Jehovah or Yahweh. But God is still in control. Habakkuk could only question God's actions within such a context. If God is not in control, if God is not ruling, if, this, if he does not have dominion, um, then why are you asking him this question? Why are you complaining to him? Habakkuk also recognized that he's not the Lord, he's the creature. God is the creator. Secondly, everlasting. God is eternal. Habakkuk could not see the whole picture because he's finite, temporal. Only God can see the whole picture, the end from the beginning. We hear this in Isaiah 46. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God provides a basis for understanding change because he does not change. He is everlasting. Thirdly, Habakkuk refers to him as my God. Habakkuk is not worshiping other gods. He's not going to go somewhere else to ask for an answer. He may not like God's answer, but God is his God. He's the one to whom he puts his complaint. We hear this from Job in Job 13. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Fourthly, Habakkuk calls him Holy One. Habakkuk knew he was sinful, and as such, his perspective is blurred. It's off. It's, his perspective isn't what it should be. God is holy. God will do what is right. Fifth, a rock. God was the foundation of Habakkuk's hope, the fortress in whom alone refuge could be found. And then the last two, six and seven, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate evil. Here, Habakkuk points to the purity of God's being. Having established these seven points of God's character, here is someone now that Habakkuk can ask questions of. This is someone to whom Habakkuk can complain. Because God's character reveals that he will tell the truth. So then Habakkuk's second question comes up. Why is God going to use the Babylonians? Habakkuk will wait for an answer. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. We find ourselves in a very difficult time during this pandemic. We have a lot of questions, if not complaints. 
but I wonder if we're asking the right questions and if we're asking the right persons. We're told so many different things by various newscasters, news media, social media. Are we asking the right questions and are we asking the right person? I think and I hope that Habakkuk can serve as a guide. And the Lord willing, we will continue our study next week. It may seem like, Damon, this is not really the best place to stop. We need to keep going. Um, It's in the middle of the dialogue. Um, But time being what it is, we will stop here. But what I want you to do, if you would, is to turn to the end of the book of Habakkuk. I want to show you how it ends. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17, 18, and 19. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. How did Habakkuk get to this point? He starts out by complaining and questioning God, and yet he gets to the point where he says, listen, if it all goes away, I will still trust in God. What I want us to do, the Lord willing, in the next few weeks is go on a journey with Habakkuk and see how he could reach this point in his faith where he could trust God and say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the book of Habakkuk, a man who went through different circumstances, but whose world was about to be turned upside down. Who was surrounded by unfavorable circumstances, and yet the worst was yet to come. I thank you that you allow us to question you that we have someone to whom we can go with our complaints. We may not like your answers, but you are there. We can call out to you. During this time, may we be asking the right questions and may we be turning to you for the answers. There is certainly a lot of fear, a certain amount of panic. We don't know where this is all going, how it's going to end, but you do. You know the end from the beginning. And you were wise and just. May we, in the weeks to come, learn, as Habakkuk did, to trust you. To know that in the darkest times, You are still the Lord. 
and we can rejoice and have joy in you. We thank you for your grace, for your love, for your spirit can comfort us, stand with us, speak to us if we would but listen. We thank you for this Sunday, the first day of a new week, and we ask that in your grace you would keep us safe through the week. For the birthdays, the reminders of your grace, for Tom's, for Nevin's, may we rejoice in what you have done for us. Again, we pray for those that are serving the public, those from our congregation, for Gwen, Zib, Ori, Riza, but for the many others, watch over them and protect them. We give thanks for them. May your spirit and your grace be with us in the coming days. I pray in Jesus' name.